Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 1, 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all his wisdom and insight, making according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. <clears throat> in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, John. Well, in my office, uh, some of you may have seen these. In my office, there are four letters. The first two were written when I was born. Uh, one... Uh, when my father knew he was having me and, uh, and then I was born, one was written to, at the time, I'm from Dallas, Texas, was to the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, Tom Landry. Uh, and in it, he speaks of me being an avid, you know, him, him being an avid uh, Cowboys fan and one day I'll, you know, possibly be in the draft. You can see how that worked out. Uh, <clears throat> The second letter was written to uh, the head coach at the University of Texas at the time where my father went, uh, and uh, head coach Daryl Royal at that time. And, uh, and <laughs> Daryl Royal uh, sent back a letter of intent with the date for when I would uh, be in uh, college, which was pretty cool. And again, you can see how that worked out. I went to Baylor, and we didn't win anything. Um, <clears throat> But those letters have really served as a, 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 gosh, a real poster for my life. I love them. They're awesome. They're really cool. Uh, I, I think that it's really awesome that my, my dad did that. But they also really served as I've grown up to see how I've used those, th those things, even without me knowing it would happen, to try and weave a particular way of me gaining love in my life. Not just through sports, but just the idea of me wanting to be wanted, loved, cherished. And, and I think that's one of the things that's a theme for not just me, but for all of us. But you, I see this part of me that still wants to merit affection and love in my life. Want to merit people to think I'm great. My family, my children, my friends, everybody. To merit Am I approved? Am I approved? And those letters really did that for me in, in that way. And, and I read them again, and sometimes I read them now with a lot of, you know, humor and humility, but, but they really serve that. And we're reading a passage now, a really powerful passage, 
that talks about these words of predestination, chosen, election. I don't know what that does to you. Some of you may, that may make you squirm. Some of you in this room may be like, just, you know, foaming at the mouth, you know, because you, you've studied so much theology that that's like the pinnacle for you. But what those words mean and why the Bible, and notice I'm saying the Bible, uses those, those words is because it's wanting us to know how loved are you? Last week we talked about sin. We went down, right? If you know any buildings, if you're noticing all the cranes around Nashville, if you just moved here, welcome. It's not always crane-like everywhere. But what's happening? They're digging these huge, huge holes in order to build these incredibly beautiful buildings for everybody to live in and, and you know, work in and all that thing. But in order for us to do that, we first had to dig down last week. Now, this week we're building up. We're looking at What's going up? How loved are we? To the degree that we're sinful, if we look at, you know, look at, you know, <clears throat> at our sin, now it's time we take 10 looks at the cross and go, how loved are you? Because I, like you, want to merit that. The Bible's saying we can't. There's no amount of merit that you can have. There's, there's nothing you can do. Predestina predestination election, those, that language is not just theological terms that people have thrown around for centuries. We're not studying Reformed theology and celebrating 500 years of the Reformation, which is this deep, rich tradition and history and theology. We're not studying that stuff because we just like the words. We're studying it because it's mined out of these kind of passages that tell us what really does it mean to be loved by Jesus? You heard that song? Oh, to be loved by Jesus? What does that really mean? What's that look like? So we're gonna sum up one of the deepest doctrines <laughs> in two points this morning. <clears throat> right, that's supposed to be funny, but it's probably not for you. Um, the first is the question of <clears throat> the answer of that you are loved beyond comprehension. You are loved beyond comprehension. And the second is, you are loved so much it, it, can, it can do nothing but change your life. Love beyond comprehension and love that changes your life. Pretty simple, huh? Well, let's dive into this powerful passage. I love it. And if you know me, by the way, you'll know that I never shy away from a difficult passage or a difficult conversation about difficult passages. But praise be to God for this one. That he begins here and he says this, praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Chose us before the creation. That there's a love set on us that is before the creation. Now, for us finite, this is why we've set the theme of us being finite engaging with God the infinite is that there are things it is beyond comprehension his love is beyond comprehension because you cannot get your arms around it there's a difference between apprehension and comprehension apprehension means you can acknowledge that something is true comprehension is when you get it and you can get your arms around it if you were to get your arms around God's love I would say you don't really know his love none of us can the point is that it's beyond us before the creation. We are creation. How can he love? His love is set on us. 
So first we need to know his love is beyond comprehension because it's only in apprehension. Election and predestination are very biblical things. And as much as people use the term Calvinism to, <clears throat> and other um, theologians to describe this, which I love talking about those theologians. We stand on their shoulders. But what they're doing is they're mining it out of these passages and multiple passages. It's not just one section in the Bible or another. It's a layering all through the scripture of God's sovereign love over us. And that it is beyond any of the people in the scripture or out of the scripture, our comprehension. It's only something we can apprehend. And here's the thing I love about it. Everyone in this room, no matter where you are on the spectrum of struggling with this definition, believes in it. J.R. Packer wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Uh, ironically, it's only about that thick. <laughs> and the very beginning of it, he starts with this one thing. He says, everyone, everyone who says they're a follower of Jesus believes in God's sovereignty and his love. And here's why. When you pray for someone to come to faith in Jesus, who do you pray to? Do you pray to the person? Do you pray to that so-and-so to come to come to faith? Or do you pray to God to do a work in them? We all do. Why? Because God's Work is sovereign. We believe in that because that's what he's saying. And he, God's sovereignty is of that strength. We have to believe that. His love and, ele and his election and predestination means we matter. It means we, he cares for us with such a deep, powerful love. It means that we matter. I think it's easy for us to first take election and predestination to mean, well, we don't have any relationship in this? Does it mean we're robots? But it's actually saying it's a far cry from this. In his, blameless in his sight, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. He's saying he's entering into deep relationship with us, a powerful one. And it means that we matter. See, typically when people approach this doctrine, they think, well, does that kind of mean we don't matter? God's just kind of moving pawns around. It's actually quite the opposite. See, God doesn't abuse his power of sovereignty just so he only matters. Here's what blows my categories. He uses his sovereign love in that he is the ultimate sovereign one in the relationship and yet we still matter infinitely. How amazing is that? Look, you know what's been really troubling to me as of late, and it should be of you, is reading over and over the headlines of what is happening now in our country, particularly in the entertainment world of this abuse of power, whether it's, you know, the Harvey Weinstein stuff or this, it just keeps going on and on. Names keep being thrown out over and over and over. And I read a really interesting article in Vanity Fair that was describing this pattern. And one of the quotes said that with this position of power, that it, it came abuse. With this came the uh, abuse of all these other, you know, relationships within it. And the thing that, that troubles me about that and what's beautiful about what God is saying here is his power, most of the time, that's what happens. When we puff up, when we use power in any way, one person matters. But what happens here in God's sovereign election and predestination is that we matter. 
He's not abusing his power. We're not pawns in a game. It's a relationship that he enters into deeply with us and carefully and wisely. It's a plan in accordance with the riches, right? In accordance with his will. It goes on and on with that. So that we understand it is a relationship with us. It's powerful and beautiful. And he cares for us deeply. But it's beyond our apprehension because how, can, how does he do this? You know, most of the, the, the things that we have is, the things we think about are, well, how do we know, you know? How, how do we know this? We don't. We can't look into anyone's heart and say, well, that person or that person. That's not on us. God, though, does say, I can see into hearts. And he doesn't just look into hearts. And sometimes this language of foreknowledge is used in the scripture to talk about when it talk about chosen, that he's looking down the timeline to see who would choose him. Nowhere in the Bible is that used. In fact, the word foreknowledge means that he set his love on those previously in time. Not that he foreknew who would choose him. The language is that. It's beautiful and powerful. But there's so many things, and J.I. Packer even says this again. He says, there's so many things that we can't understand or get our arms around, yet we know they're true. It's called an antinomy. That's how he describes it. He says that two things that seemingly are opposing and yet work beautifully together, right? See, here's the question that's always asked. Is history fixed or is it open, right? I mean, is this a fixed thing or is this open? If it's fixed, then where do we come into this? Where are our choice? Does it even matter that we make choices on a day-to-day basis? Well, if it's open, right? Well, if it's open, history's open, then our, gosh, is there any form or reason to it? Would our choices matter in that as well? See, over and over, our culture is batting back and forth this idea of, is it fixed or open? You see it in movies, you hear it in music, you see it all around us in the way that we live. What God is saying is, it works together. God doesn't compromise you being a relational being. He enters into relationship with relational beings. He created us to be in relationship with him. And yet he is 100% in control. There's no percentage lower. There's no 50-50. He is 100% in control of that. And yet he enters into relationship with that. It is this perfect blend. It's an antinomy of that. That he is sovereign in his love and election on us. And yet, in his love over us, he doesn't say, your love, your love doesn't matter. But that your love does. I was, I was listening to, I don't know if you ever listened to uh, This American Life. It's a... Uh, uh, NPR kind of program, and sometimes they do interesting stories. And one that was on, uh, just every now and then, just look at it, see what kind of things they have up. There's one called Things I Mean to Know. I thought this was really interesting. And there was a woman who was in class, and they were talking about um, does the earth revolve around the sun, or does the sun revolve around the earth? And you know, the professor asked the students in the class, and as they were interviewing this, this woman who was in the class, a student, the professor said, which is it? Does the earth revolve around the sun? Or does the sun revolve around the earth? Everybody raised their hands for, you know, the earth revolves around the sun, of course. And all of a sudden, the professor drops a bomb and says, how do you know? Prove it. And the, the class went silent. 
You know, well, maybe uh, refer to Galileo. Well, how did he know? You know, I mean, he started asking these questions and everybody in the class was dumbfounded. And it drove, it was interesting. It drove this woman to actually begin to say, what do I know about anything? It made her ask, she started a list called things I mean to know. And she said, I'm going to start with seven questions of things in my life, this being one of them, and try and figure those out. And once I finish those seven, I'll move on to the next. Some of her questions were like everything from, is it heliocentric to geocentric to what's the difference between sweet potatoes and yams? You know, that was one of her questions. What is a Sunni, Shiite, you know, those kind of questions. She said, you know how many questions she answered? The yams question. And the, the interviewer said, why? You're super intelligent. Why, why did you stop? Because there are things that I, I just can't know everything. I, I, I can't fit it all. I, I'm, I'm finite. I can't, I can't process it all. She can't have it all. She turned for the things that she meant to know into, me, into only things that she could get grasp. She couldn't. There are plenty of things that we know but don't know. But God is saying to us, look, this is true. And how does he do so? He does so by saying, I've sent my son. I've sent him to show you that you are a part of, of this family. He gives assurance. Look, any time in the Bible, any time in the Bible that it talks about predestination and election, any time, it's always for assurance. It's to remind those reading and those hearing it that you read in here, that God's love doesn't change. It is fixed on us. And don't we need that? In all of our uncertainty. And let me throw out some scenarios to you. And I'll be quite frank with some of mine. A lot of the questions that we have about predestination and election are like, what about the guy or girl on an island? What about the person who doesn't hear? What about those kind of questions of, of well, how, how strong is it? M many of my friends, and maybe some of you in this room that I know as well, have children with special needs. Some severely so much that the question is, well, can this child profess faith? I have some friends who are, are pastors who have had children that are so, uh, have such severe special needs that, that, that there was no way you could comprehend what was being spoken about Jesus or the Bible or any of those things. How do we know that those children would be saved? Do we trust in the language, in the profession itself, in the tongue being able to actually speak the words of Jesus? Or is there a greater arm that reaches in through covenant families, through the representative of Jesus, through the covenant of his love for us, through families and mercy that we depend on that's greater than the activity of that child? Some of you, I'm gonna, <clears throat> which I can identify with, have lost children that have never come from even your womb. And I want you to know first that you're being prayed for and you have empathy in those places. Many of you, I've talked to about those things. How are you comforted? There's nowhere in the Bible that talks about babies are innocent. Nowhere. 
fact, it says we all are the opposite, that we are evil born in sin. That's what we even talked about last week. What do we trust in? That God's arm is well stronger than the womb. Because he says, in the womb, I knew you. And the word know isn't just, I know who you are. It's a deep knowledge. It's a know that it's almost even in sexual language of that deep, profound love of knowledge. That God knows beyond the child, even breathing air, that we can trust that we would see those. Those of you, I want to encourage you, you are parents. And you don't trust in those things because, and other things like that, because the child could hear. It is because we have a God whose arm is stronger, who can reach into places that we cannot. If he can do that, can't he reach someone on an island? His love is for us of assurance and power. Even this language here in Greek for what he talks about of adoption of sons, he says in verse five, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's talking about that there's no amount of sin or anything that can thwart you being a child of God. Adoption in the Greco-Roman world meant you were brought in, you received all the rights of anyone else in that family. It meant you received the inheritance, you had it all. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the, who is a great British theologian, he said this about that language of adoption. He said, adoption is something that's not just a theological thing we're supposed to grab intellectually, but something we're supposed to take in experientially. We're supposed to experience it emotionally, he said. Here's this grand theologian of all time in Britain, and he's saying adoption isn't something you just kind of talk about. It's something that you, you grasp emotionally. It's a part of you. You live in it. It's powerful. And yet it's so easy for us to be so focused on our own merit, our own small things, then the sonship, the great sonship of God reaching in and making us a son. We didn't ask, think about that. All of us are sitting in this room. We didn't ask to be born. It happens. We are. And who you are born from is there. It's just that you didn't ask that. I always joke when I wish somebody a happy birthday. I said, great job on that. Happy birthday. Great job being born. But it is that, isn't it? We don't, we don't have sovereignty in that. What is God saying here is that he, he reached and predestined us for adoption. He, saw, he said, I'm going to make you a son in relationship with me. And you will receive every right that there is as a son. Adoption is something that's really prevalent in our home. We, we are very, um, we have, uh, our, our sons are adopted. And um, every two, on Tuesday, there's a Tuesday of the month that is uh, pretty powerful <clears throat> in this city. There's one Tuesday a month where uh, there is 
uh, all the adoptions happen at the courthouse downtown. If you ask any of the judges or people downtown that kind of preside over this, it's actually a really powerful event. It's one of their favorite things. It's different than all the, you know, tickets or anything else they're having to preside over. And if you go downtown, you sit in the courthouse, you see this long line of benches, probably as long as this aisle. There's one in the, you know, benches back to back in the middle. Families just sitting, talking, excited, sweet. Kids either running around or being held that are being adopted, brought into families. It's beautiful. So we go in and we're with our, our lawyer. And I just remember, I think I was, it was almost like I was out of it. It was such a surreal event that I just remember being kind of almost <laughs> in a fog in some ways and taking vows and holding my hand up and as I held my son and we were in <clears throat> this courtroom for some time and, and the judge was so funny and kind. We go up to take a picture with him and he gives my six-month-old son at the time a Tootsie Roll pop. Now, if you're here and you ever babysit children, don't do that. Um, or if you're a parent, please don't do that. That is not something you give a six-month-old, is a Tootsie Roll Pop. So granted, son grabs it, starts gnawing on the wrapper. I mean, he's wanting to get into this thing, and why wouldn't you? It's a Tootsie Roll Pop. How many licks does it take to get in the center? So he has this thing, he's eating it, and we have, you know, of course, have to take it away, and that causes a stir. But we have this picture of us uh, in that court setting. And here's what was beautiful about that. There we are with our son in arms, joyful, tears, people celebrating, all of it. At that time, he's receiving a new name, a new family, a whole new life. And yet, what's he interested in? The Tootsie Roll Pop. Isn't that how we view God's love? Isn't it so easy for us to hold that and to think, oh, this, is, this is great. <laughs> and yet we have a whole new life. A love that's set on us that changes our whole world. We have assurance in him and yet we live in fear of punishment. We try and merit love through, through beating our guilt up. Like, how guilty can I feel? How can I deal with it enough to where I feel like I can handle it and I can come out of it and, and be loved? We fear punishment. We think God is as if he's sitting on a porch waiting for us to come home from some bad decision we made, tapping his foot and crossing his arms. And we have to get back in good with him. That's not his love set on us. Do you know the language, the, the actual Greek of, and it, it says this so many times, the riches it uses here. The riches in verse seven, he lavished upon us. The things that he put upon us, it's like this, it's to get this image of this riches, this wealth, every spiritual blessing, all these things. It's not about something that, that we're just kind of given in a Tootsie Roll pop. It is this overwhelming love that's so grand. In fact, the language for the riches is, is to, for us to think about it in these terms. It's to think 
that it's releasing us from sin and forgiveness of sins in accordance with his riches of God's grace is to move us towards an abundance that actually, in in some commentators say, exceeds the norm of particular society. In other words, any cultural standard we put on the riches that we think we should, and the merit that we think we should have to be loved, this is way more. This is well beyond. The riches that we have in him are set. And it says the spiritual, the very beginning, the heavenly realms. This is one of the only places that Paul, the one who wrote this letter, writes these these words. That he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's not like a soul thing like, oh man, we should feel better now. He's actually saying there's a spatial location where all of this is hanging and it is in a person, Jesus. That in the person of Jesus, the fleshliness, the one himself, he is there. And in fact, the Holy Spirit himself is used in Ephesians in this letter. The other person of the Trinity is actually described as a deposit, an inheritance of this. It was language like real estate language where they would dig up a bag of dirt and they would give you the the bag of dirt to carry with you so that you could actually say, yeah, this land is mine. It's my inheritance. Here's my deposit. The Holy Spirit is that. A physical, tangible reality of what is yours in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus himself. And there's no way to lose this adoption. There's no way you can squirm out from underneath it. There's no sin, amount of sin that you can do enough of that will say, I'm sorry, you can't be a part of this family anymore. There's no amount of it. And yet we live that way. There's an interview with Bono in a book, you may have read this book called Interviews with Bo- Interview with Bono by Mishka Asayas. And I love how he gets to a point where he reaches Bono's faith. And I love what Bono actually says to, to uh, Mr. Asayas. The interviewer, Mr. Asayas, began by asking him, doesn't, <clears throat> talking about the horrible things that Bono did growing up, says, don't, doesn't he think appalling things happen when people become religious? Bono countered, It's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. The interviewer asked Mishka Shayas, what's that? At the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or in physics and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite, uh, opposite one, Bono explained. And yet along comes this idea of grace to upend all that. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. The interviewer asked, like what? That's between me and God, Bono said. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my final judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. And then the interviewers marveled at this. Listen to what he said. The son of God who takes away the sins of the world, I wish I could believe that. 
And Bono finishes by saying this, the point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that we put, what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death, replied Bono. It's not our own good works that gets us through the gates of heaven. How much of us, as much as we would claim this table as our assurance and our humility and our life, yet we live in a world of karma. We live thinking, gosh, I hope I don't do anything to mess this up. You will. Gosh, I hope my sin is X, Y, Z. This table is for us sinners. This is a table that shows you a couple things. It's a table that shows you sovereignty because if your blood and body was strong enough to handle your sin, it would be up here. You would be drinking and eating that. And yet it is not. The only one that can do that is Jesus. See, this table is a table of humility. It means that you must trust in another. It means you must bend the knee before one who is much greater than you. One who actually bent his knee. Here's what's awesome about God's sovereignty and election. Just because it's true doesn't mean it has, can't be hard. How many things in the Bible are hard or we struggle with? Oh, how about all of them? Can we be honest? But it doesn't negate the fact that it's true. Your doubt, your struggle with his sovereignty doesn't change this table. Let this table encourage you about his sovereign love. Here's what's beautiful about it. He enters in, he invites you to trust him. Jesus, if, if sovereignty and election was just kind of this, this idea, we would have no bread and body up here. We just, oh yeah, you, you, you. Why would Jesus have to come? But he comes to deal with the reality of sin so that we can turn to him the reality of the one whose love is set on us long before we ever set our love on him. And even here in this passage, it says, to make you blameless and holy in his sight. Let election and predestination and being chosen, those glorious words of the Bible, wash over you in assurance and humility so that you can live in light of those things. It's not to produce arrogance, but humility and kindness that you can go, oh my word, I'm this filthy and yet I'm this loved. With that, let's stand together.